The American Council of the Blind presents ACB Reports, a monthly news magazine containing topics of interest to people who are blind or have low vision. I'm Mike Duke. This month... Meet talking book narrator Gabriela Caballero. Welcome to ACB Reports for January 2015. A highlight at the annual conference and convention of the American Council of the Blind is a presentation from a narrator of talking books. In 2014, that narrator was Gabriela Caballero, who has read nearly 800 books. She was introduced to the crowd by ACB Secretary Ray Campbell. It is my distinct pleasure this morning to present our talking book narrator for 2014, Gabriella Cavallero, she has a 20-year career with the Talking Book Publishers in Denver, Colorado, has read close to 800 books, many different genres. Gabriella's signature, if you've listened to any of her books, is her mastery of foreign dialects. She uh, does uh, very well with that. In fact, she's also a dialect coach and speech coach uh, and language coach for several top theater uh, companies in the Denver area. She also has uh, appeared in dozens of roles for the uh, Tony Award-winning uh, Denver Theater Company and uh, is a director art, is a, and is basically uh, very involved in the uh, theater business there. She holds an MFA in acting from the uh, National Acting Conservatory and also a BA from Vassar College. Let's give an ACB warm welcome to this year's talking book narrator, Gabriella Cavallaro. Thank you, Ray. So, what do you want to be when you grow up? A narrator? Now, what little girl in their right mind would ever say that? I would definitely, when I was little, and I would actually say a narrator, get some pretty strange looks. Before that, when I was even littler, I would say ballerina. I was a little bit more normal. Well, actually, I would say bailarina, because I didn't actually even speak English until I was eight years old. But I really did want to be a narrator when I was a kid. I grew up. Yes, thank you. Thank you, puppies of the world. (laughs) I grew up under the baby grand piano, that's what I always say, in Puerto Rico and later in Maryland, listening to my dreamy Argentine musician parents, my mother practicing her sonatas and concertos, she's a concert pianist, and my dad practicing all these complex Latin rhythms, playing his jazz on the piano. One evening, we went to a symphony concert for children, and the star in the spotlight was this beautiful, elegant woman in a long, shiny dress. She made such an impression on me. She led us, her audience, with this gorgeous, commanding voice that I immediately fell in love with. She narrated a story that night, weaving it around all the instruments up on that stage, all those melodies, and I was totally mesmerized. And I thought, wow, that's magic. I love how my world's 
music and words and stories get to be woven together, how she does that. I want to do that. This is from The Elegance of the Hedgehog by Muriel Barbary. Thinking back on it this evening with my heart and my stomach all like jelly, I have finally concluded maybe that's what life is about. There's a lot of despair, but also the odd moment of beauty where time is no longer the same. It's as if those strains of music created a sort of interlude in time, something suspended and elsewhere that had to come to us, and always within never. Yes, that's it, and always within never. I did become an actor. First, by way of music, which Muriel Barbary speaks so beautifully about. I was so inspired by the gorgeous music in my house, day and night, so lucky. But I also came to be an actor through my foreignness. I moved from Puerto Rico to the States with all our relatives in Argentina when I was eight years old to a different culture, different rhythms, different music, a totally different language. We were all a little lost. We were a little family of four, me and my little brother. I had a nasal Puerto Rican accent, which I got rid of very fast because I got made fun of very badly, and kids are very cruel when you're in third grade. But the feeling of being a totally different planet was not as easily banished as losing my accent. I loved recording Julia Alvarez's How the Garcia Girls Lost Their Accents when I first started recording. She seemed to grab chunks straight out of my own life as an immigrant kid, and I got to relive those times a little bit more gently. The problem with you girls, the problem boiled down to the fact that they wanted to become Americans, and their father and mother, too, at first, would have none of it. When I end up in Bellevue, you'll be safely sorry. Their mommy's English was a mishmash of mixed-up idioms, we're not going to that school anymore, mommy. You have to. In this country, it's the law. You want us to get thrown out? You want us to get killed, mommy? Those kids were throwing stones today. Sticks and stones don't break bones. <laughs> but Yo-Yo could tell by the look on her mother's face that it was as if one of those stones thrown at her daughter had hit her. Well, what did you do to have them throw rocks at you? It takes two to tangle, you know. <laughs> so, back to my life. I master English, adjust well to the place that I live, go to great schools, but I always feel like an outsider. Enter the theater world to save me. I got a BA in theater, as Ray said. I lived in New York for a year, and I toured a couple of bilingual shows nationally. Then... My MFA in acting in a conservatory in beautiful Denver, Colorado, led me to be a part of one of the biggest repertory theater companies in the U.S., the Denver Center Theater Company, and to find a home at Talking Book Publishers, which brings me here today. <laughs> Who would have thought that after that woman on stage with the great voice planting that seed... I would indeed become a narrator of all things for the National Library Service. Total dream come true. Now, being an actor, it is not for the faint-hearted, let me tell you, or the stability needy. 
you need a good dose of crazy to be in this profession. But I would never trade what I do. Honestly, being a narrator is what keeps me sane. And I'll tell you a secret. I keep my passion for being a narrator kind of quiet in the acting world, and this is why. Most of us audition for a play, and if we don't fit the cliche idea of a character, never mind all our experience or our talent or our training, if we don't have just the right skin color or body type or voice that a director has in mind, we don't get the part. We have to have very thick skins. I, however, get to play incredible parts all the time that I would never dream of being cast in on stage. Let that be our secret. I have played in multiple accents. Queens, ladies of the court, and ladies of the evening. I've been a circus performer, a governess, a maid, an outlaw, a judge, a cowboy, a werewolf, a mermaid, and a hydra. I've played Robespierre, Napoleon, and George Washington. I've been Marie Antoinette, Mary Todd Lincoln, and Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor. Now, for those of you who might wonder about the setting of all these recordings, I'm going to set the stage for you a little bit about our daily routine. The studio that we record in is housed in a little flat, shack-looking old building. We're in an industrial area. Our neighbors are a junkyard, a print shop, and a marijuana shop. (laughs) We are in Colorado, after all. When I get out of my car, the first thing I get is the very strong wallop of smelly skunk from next door. Then I enter my workplace, which I truly love, talking books, with its vintage 70s paneling. I step into an unlit black corridor, and I open this vault-heavy door into my booth, a dark, sparse little room. The walls are decorated with photos and art of my sweet little girl, Ariana. I click on my lamp, which is precariously balanced on a Kleenex box. It's, it's very, very fancy. I set up my pile of materials, my book, and my pronouncers, or the big pile of research about all the pronunciations of all the books that we do. Then I check in with my partner in crime, my partner in recording, who we call monitors. They're our engineers. They're pushing the buttons. They're following along with the book as we record, who I see blurrily through the thick panes of soundproof glass dividing us. In the first hour of my seven-hour day of recording that day, I might finish a book, say, a young adult sci-fi trilogy with horse people, bird women, and serpent people, and then I immediately get handed the next novel, this time set in 1400s England, with some very proper British royals and a few rogue Scots thrown in for good measure. And we have no time to prepare. No time. We make the quickest, strongest choices we can, rely on the cliché character types, and pray to our angels of reading that we won't get to page 230 of a novel to find out that you've been recording the hero with the usual sexy basso upper-crust Brit voice. And you come to this passage, page 230, let me remind you. He kissed her, and with his strong, 
tenor Irish brogue whispered, <laughs> OMG. <laughs> this is where we cue my inner primal scream because otherwise I'd blow out the eardrums of my poor little monitor. Every once in a long while, our strong choice is absolutely the wrong choice, and it is not pretty, but it doesn't happen very often. So I have my novel and all the research set up, and then my monitor will say, okay, G, you ready? Yep, let's roll. And for the next six hours, the flowy gypsy skirt and the T-shirt that I'm wearing become velvet and silk brocade and whalebone corset. I am not in my comfy, rolly chair. I am on my throne. Your Highness, I cannot be your mistress. I am Elizabeth Grey. I would rather die than dishonor my name. I cannot bring shame upon my family, whatever I wish in my heart. Now, if you were a fly on the wall, you'd find that we're all in our own little worlds for the most part at Talking Books. The narrators, we're all isolated in our booths, and our monitors, who make the recordings happen, all have their big headphones on. So if you were walking through, you'd only get to hear what their half of the conversations are, and that gets to be kind of funny. As you walk through the hall, it's pretty quiet, but suddenly you hear laughter over funny voices or outrageously bad writing or because Gabriella's brains are scrambled from switching back from Spanish to French to Cockney in one crazy chapter, and she's making really silly mistakes. Maybe you'll hear from one of the monitors, what did you just say? What did she say? Gab, are you falling asleep in there? <laughs> you may also hear a monitor sobbing at the end of a heartbreaking book. And this does happen quite often because we get very involved with the characters that we live with for weeks sometimes, and they break our hearts. There are also really interesting times when the studio is a little bit more abuzz, like when I was given a certain racy trilogy to read. Oh, I, I hear some of you may know what that is. <laughs> I came into the studio, and my dear friend, Martha Harmon Pardee, Yes, she's fabulous. She came and she said, oh my gosh, I cannot believe you are recording Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> and I said, what? She said, what do you mean what? I had absolutely no idea what Fifty Shades of Grey was. I'm, I, don't, I don't really keep up with anything. And, the, and it was still rather a new thing. Uh, but needless to say, uh, <laughs> I had quite an adventure for the next three weeks. All the monitors seemed to want to at least have one shift with me to see why, <laughs> even though they poo-pooed it, they wanted to see why these books were flying off the shelves and making billions. And this doesn't usually happen, but the National Library Service was calling every few days with rush deadlines because patrons were wanting to know when the recording would be out. Now, I was used to a lot of thrones and countless historical romances I recorded. I sat on thrones. I lay under thrones. I had overthrown thrones. But I told my studio manager, I can only moan so fast. <laughs> there were enough moans in those three yeah. books 
in the 1,000 upteen pages to last anyone a few lifetimes. I mean, I perfected the moan. Oh, holy. Uh. I gasp, and I'm Eve in the Garden of Eden, and he's the serpent, and I can't resist. Trust me, he breathes. I nod, wide-eyed, my heart bouncing off my ribs, my blood thundering around my body. He reaches down, he takes out his silver-gray silk tie, that silver tie that leaves small impressions of its weave on my skin. And I'm going to stop there. (laughs) Here's a bigger taste of some excerpts from some favorite books. I love making collages. So I put together a little collage of writings. Many have been patron favorites through the years, and many of them have been my faves. The parts that I had to stop recording for, madly trying to find like a paper clip or a sticky note to mark the spot. They're words that made me laugh or cry and certainly grabbed my heart. Instructions to the Reader, a poem by Linda Paston. Come. Suspend willingly or not your disbelief, and with empty pockets enter the room of the story. Warm your fingers at this candle, which is only the stub of a dream, and at any time may flicker or go out. Here, fire consumes itself with paper and pencil for kindling. Here, a unicorn waits in the corner, its musical horn ready. When I tell you this story is pure fact, you will want to leave the room, but stay a while. There's also a beggar here with a bowl of rice. Fill your pockets. Hurry. Of the thousands of nights, there are only a few handfuls left. From Eat, Pray, Love by Elizabeth Gilbert. Groceries, Richard says, listen to me. Someday you're going to look back at this moment of your life as such a sweet time of grieving. But I really loved him. Big deal. So you fell in love with him. I mean, you got zapped, kiddo. But that's just limited, little, rinky-dinky, mortal love. Wait till you see how much more deeply you can love than that. Heck, groceries, you have the capacity to someday love the whole world. It's your destiny. Hey, don't laugh. I'm not laughing. I was actually crying. And please don't laugh, but I believed David was my... Your soulmate? Listen groceries. People think a soulmate is your perfect fit, and that's what everyone wants, but a true soulmate is a mirror, the person who shows you everything that's holding you back. It's over, groceries. His purpose was to shake you up, tear apart your ego a little bit, break your heart open so new light can get in, make you so desperate and out of control so that you have to transform your life. That was his job, and he did great, but I love him, so love him. I miss him, so miss him. But I wish, see, now that's your problem. You're wishing too much, baby. You got to stop wearing your wishbone where your backbone ought to be. From A Curse As Dark As Gold. Rosie and I both fell utterly silent. I put out a hand to steady William's basket, Good day, Mr. Spinner, I said. 
He tipped his battered hat to me. You girls didn't forget I was coming now, did you? No, of course not, I said. Would you? Would you care for some tea? Spinner looked round the office. The wind shrieked through the cracks in the floor. No, no, he said slowly. I think I'll just take what I came for, thank you. And what is that then? Spinner took a step closer to me. What was the offer again? Anything, I said. The word, a faint croak. Whatever you want. Rosie cried out. What could you possibly want? I laid a hand on her arm. He could list them. Every treasure of my heart. Take it all. Whatever you want. It was the bargain. Good. Spinner's hand reached toward the basket. I'll take your son then. What? Rosie shrieked, but I was numb with silence. The wind had cut off my voice from my heart. Charlotte, for the love of God, do something. No. Put him down. He turned to her. You cannot have him. That was not our bargain. Oh, no. But it was anything I ask you said so. You wouldn't break your word as a miller now, would you? You can't take him. He's so new. I barely know him yet. This is from Elizabeth Bard's Lunch in Paris. I'm not the girl who swings from chandeliers and screws men because she can. Fixing her lipstick in the rearview mirror of a cab hailed at dawn. I'm the girl you call Wednesday for Saturday. The girl who reads Milton for fun and knows a fish fork when she sees one. A flirt, maybe, but in that 19th century, kiss my hand and ask me to waltz kind of way. Mostly, I'm a thinker, a worrier. Since I'm a New Yorker, you can take that last bit up a notch. It's not that there's no free spirit in me. It's just a free spirit with a five-year plan. From Outlander. No wonder he was so good with horses, I thought blearily feeling his fingers rubbing gently behind my ears, listening to the soothing, incomprehensible speech. If I were a horse, I'd let him ride me anywhere. (laughs) From The Help by Catherine Stockett. Constantine sat down next to me at the kitchen table. I heard the cracking of her swollen joints. She pressed her thumb hard in the palm of my hand, something we both knew meant, listen to me. Every morning, until you dead in the ground, you're going to have to make this decision. Constantine was so close, I could see the blackness of her gums. You're going to have to ask yourself, am I going to believe what them fools say about me today? She kept her thumb pressed hard in my hand, I was just smart enough to realize she meant white people. And even though I still felt miserable and knew that I was most likely ugly, it was the first time she ever talked to me like I was something besides my mother's white child. All my life I'd been told what to believe about politics, colors, being a girl. But with Constantine's thumb pressed in my hand, I realized I actually had a choice in what I could believe. From Safi's Angel by Hilary McKay. Quick, Caddy, let's go straight away. 
I don't know the way. Indigo is fantastic at maps. I can only drive slowly. That's all right. And I can only do left turns. Rose ran downstairs, grabbed a road atlas, and ran triumphantly back up again. Caddy, Wales is left. Look, all left turns. Wales is left all the way. From the Invisible Mountain by Carolina de Robertis. She wanted to grow old with him, wanted to know how his touch would feel on wrinkled skin. All their moments were stolen, and there were never enough. Tell me more. Tell me your heart, the whole of it. Once, years ago, she had wanted to die. Now she raged that there was not enough life, that they did not have a thousand years to spend, that one day their pockets would be emptied of days. They had only little coins of time, and they spent and spent and spent them. So, this is what joy does to a woman, she thought. It makes you hungry, makes you long to live and live, makes you guard the secret at any cost, wakes the animal inside, and makes her growl to break the heavens into pieces. Julia Alvarez, in Something to Declare, says, This is the way in which I feel writing matters. It clarifies and intensifies It deepens and connects me to others. We are so largely unimaginable to one another. But writing allows us inside those others and knits us together as a human species. And because writing matters in this way to me, it does something else. It challenges me, not just to read and have that private enjoyment of clarity, but to pass it on. That my readers care matters. That they are living fuller versions of themselves and of each other because they have read books matters. The world goes from bright to brilliant to luminous so that for brief seconds we see clearly everything that matters. And that's my collage for you there. <laughs> I want to leave you with a little reminder about yourselves, especially after having the honor and the gift to be with you this morning. So the little reminder is that you are the reason that I get to do what I do, truly. As an actor, one of my great privileges is to breathe life into all these words. Thank you for completing the circle, completing the equation. Without your listening, your imaginations, your hearts, there's just a lot of meaningless noise. I wish you happy listening and happy journeys. No matter your taste, whether it be elegant thrones or in the beautiful escape of romance in moans, <laughs> I truly hope that your travels and books transport and inspire you, and move you, and make you really hungry for life. Thank you. Talking Book narrator Gabriela Caballero was recorded in Las Vegas, Nevada, July 2014. 
You've been listening to ACB Reports, heard on radio information services nationwide on side four of the Braille Forum cassette edition and throughout the world on acbradio.org. ACB Reports is produced at Radio Reading Service of Mississippi, a service of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Send suggestions and comments about this program to reports at acbradio.org. Contact the American Council of the Blind online at acb.org or phone 800-424-8666. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next month for another ACB Reports.